In the spring of 2023, the COVID-19 national and public health emergencies were declared over in the United States. Examples from throughout the past several centuries show that the end of a pandemic is determined on the basis of not only epidemiologic criteria, but also societal concerns. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Joel Abirashad, a fellow at Harvard University's Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Dr. Abirashad has co-authored a perspective article about how pandemics end. Dr. Abirashad, what reasons did the federal government give when it ended the COVID-19 national and public health emergencies in the United States earlier this year? So it is worth remembering that the COVID national and public health emergencies were set to expire this year. Now, on the eve of a key vote in the House on a bill called Revealingly the Pandemic is Over Act, and which was pushed forward by the Republican-controlled chamber, the White House issued a statement that it would allow the emergencies to expire as a sign that federal officials and the administration believed that the pandemic had moved into a new, less dire, more manageable phase. Now, it's important to remember the epidemiologic context as well. At the time, 500 Americans on average were dying on a daily basis. So the pandemic was still raging. So cases and deaths were still substantial. But the democratic view was that we didn't need to be in a state of emergency any longer since we had the tools to deal with it. We had vaccines, we had diagnostic tests, we even had treatments. And there was a general sense that the coronavirus was no longer upending everyday life to the extent it once did, partly because much of the population had at least some protection against the virus from vaccinations and prior infections. And there was also a sense that we had entered into this more routine phase of the pandemic. So there were routine boosters, routine vaccines, and so on. And people had started to routinize and normalize living with the virus. And in our perspective, we identify this routinization mechanism or process as a key element of what we call the normalization of mortality and morbidity and this process of endemicizing disease. And we can say a bit more about that later. So this was the democratic view on the one hand. The Republican view on the other hand was that COVID was no longer the number one killer. It had receded behind heart disease, cancer, and unintentional injuries, though one should remember that it had killed 200,000 Americans in 2022. But according to the Republican view, COVID was no longer a leading cause of death, and hence there was no need to spend more money on treatment, prevention, and so on. And so while the rationale behind the Biden administration's decision to end the public health emergency is very different from the Republicans, in the end, the end result was the same. Many pandemic-related funding sources were fundamentally reduced. That said, I think it is important, even at this stage, to highlight three observations about this transition from a state of emergency to a post-emergency situation where the disease is now endemicized. The first one is that we need to make sure that the transition to a normal post-pandemic period is indeed smooth. It is important to ensure that certain policies and services are maintained once the emergency ends. For instance, with the end of the public health emergency, the federal government stopped purchasing and distributing COVID vaccines. And this is now having a huge impact in nursing homes, which amid an uptick of COVID cases are encountering, well, resistance from their own employees to receive yet another round of shots, but also in terms of supply. The second observation is that the end of the emergency should be an occasion to reflect on what went wrong. So on the shortcomings, of course, but also on what went right and perhaps institutionalize these policies that had worked. And this should be an occasion to examine and tackle the new morbidities created by this pandemic, like long COVID that affects now millions of Americans. 
And we need, again, to make sure that the resources and the funds are there. And finally, this is all the more pertinent, precisely because since COVID is no longer this exceptional disease, so an, ex an exceptional situation, it will now compete with other diseases for resources, for funding, for attention, and even for policymaking. And this, is, again, has major consequences. And this is something we have seen with the HIV AIDS pandemic when it stopped being considered a public health emergency. And this is something we highlight in our perspective. You say that the associated morbidity and mortality have been normalized, and that contributes to what you call the endemicization of the disease. Can you talk a bit about what you mean by endemicization? Absolutely. So, so far, 7 million people have lost their lives to COVID around the world, and among them, at least 1 million Americans. And of course, this is an underestimate, as we know, because many deaths have gone unreported and uncounted. But besides this tragic human toll, the economic and social costs of the COVID pandemic have been significant. So according to the World Bank, the COVID pandemic triggered the largest global economic shock in more than a century and a sharp increase in inequality within and across countries. The impact was not only on the economy, right, on trade, on business, on employment, but as we know, it, it had also de detrimental consequences on education and mental health. So at some point, governments realize that this situation is unsustainable. It is too costly economically, socially, and of course, politically. And this becomes especially more pertinent when public health tools such as vaccines become available tools that give you a sense that the pandemic is now under control. Now, at the same time, societies also gradually start to normalize the mortality and morbidity associated with the coronavirus when they start to routinize living with the virus. And so some deaths come to be seen as inevitable and hence are de facto tolerated. And usually these quote-unquote inevitable deaths or deaths that are made inevitable concern the more and the most vulnerable populations in a society. They concern the elderly, they concern those who are immunocompromised, they concern the poor, and those who are at a socioeconomic disadvantage. And very often these are the same populations that suffer from all kinds of comorbidities that, as we know, worsen the health outcomes of being infected with the coronavirus. As we argue in our perspective, this represents the moment when the value of a human life is factored into a government's welfare calculation in the name of pragmatism. And implicit in that calculation is that some lives are more valuable than others. In doing so, in normalizing that threshold of mortality and the associated morbidity, this moment contributes to what we call the endemicization of diseases. So this is a process that involves tolerating a certain number of infections, without saturating emergency departments. So the expectation is that there will be surges, there will be outbreaks, but the hope is that these will be under control precisely because of the available public health tools. So our perspective is about describing, identifying, analyzing, and inviting both the public and the profession to examine more carefully this turning point, this crucial moment when we go from a state of emergency or a state of exception to a state of so-called normalcy, which in fact is a state where the disease becomes endemicized and routinized, and the management of risk becomes an individual choice rather than mandated by the state or state authorities. And there are implications to that turning point, and perhaps I can highlight here three of them. The first one is about self-protection. So what do we do about protecting ourselves from the disease in this new endemicized situation? This is crucial. 
data surveillance has been rolled back, as we know, because of the expiration of the public health emergency. And yet, without accurate numbers, without open data, without adequate public health infrastructure, we know that we're left in the dark and unprepared for future pandemics. Another issue is masking. Many people have questions about masking, even in healthcare settings. Why? Well, because we turned it from a public health mandatory routine to a voluntary notion of how we want to go about around risk. Another implication is what kind of support do we give people who become ill or are now at risk in this new phase of endemicization? And this is not often examined because there is a powerful cultural, psychological, and as we say in our perspective, a political desire to be over with this pandemic. And finally, very often at a time when we should be directing more attention at how we managed emergencies and perhaps draw some lessons, there seems to be, again, little desire to do that in the immediate post-context of the pandemic. So after Ebola, for instance, there were all kinds of reports that showed how ill-prepared we were for the next outbreak of an emerging infection. There were all kinds of shortcomings that were highlighted. There were all kinds of reports, and yet these reports fell on deaf ears. And some say that there was even no political will really to push through the policy changes and proposals that were put in place after Ebola. When it comes to COVID, initially there was enthusiasm to put together a national COVID commission to answer the pressing and really troubling question as to why the United States had a higher death rate from COVID than other wealthy nations. But again, the Congress and the administration did not want to carry on with this commission. So as we note in our perspective, what to do with the residual elements of an endemicized and routinized disease is crucial, is fundamental, especially because by COVID into this chronic endemic routine and routinized disease, well, then it competes with other diseases for attention, for resources, for research, and so on. Are there examples of an alternative to endemicizing or routinizing a pandemic disease? Are there societies that have not done that? Our article, our perspective is not about counterfactuals, really. It is about this crucial turning moment when we endemicize the disease. Historians don't like to think about counterfactuals, actually. So it would indeed be counterfactual. There's no example of that. Exactly. Finally, you mentioned AIDS as another example of this turning point. How can the historical context and an understanding of the reasons that pandemics are declared over inform future public health messaging and future public health decision making? We mention a few historical examples in our piece to draw some general insights about the underlying rationales, because it is important to identify those, the trade-offs and the consequences of proclaiming the end of a pandemic. Now, we do mention AIDS for a few reasons, but HIV AIDS is in fact an emblematic pandemic for perhaps two reasons that are relevant in the context of COVID. So as we note in the perspective, COVID is similarly now moving from the state of exception or emergency to a state of chronicity, where basically it becomes this chronic endemicized and routinized disease. In the case of HIV-AIDS, this endemicization process, in fact, was catalyzed by the success of the antiviral medications, which ironically led to complacency and dampened the sense of urgency. Another important insight from the HIV-AIDS pandemic is to remind ourselves of the economic consequences of this process of endemicizing diseases. Right? There are huge profits to be made from this shift from an acute, so to speak, to a chronic condition. And in similar fashion, we can think of long COVID, perhaps 
as another example of a disease that is en route to become the chronic form of a once pandemic disease, which is now seen as an economic burden, crippling millions, not only in the US, but around the world, but might become the next pharmaceutical boom. Now, there are other historical examples that I mentioned and that we mentioned in our perspective to draw other kinds of insights that are important as we think about future pandemics. Perhaps I can mention the first example that we give, which may sound irrelevant, but in fact, it is very relevant. It is about 18th century France and how in 1723, the French king Louis XV, also known as Louis the Beloved or Louis le Bien-Aimé in French, decreed the end of the plague that had ravaged France and in specific the city of Marseille. Now, this was a political proclamation par excellence, right, in the form of a placard even that had to be read publicly. And the decree invited people to hold bonfires and rejoice about the cessation of the plague. But the rationale behind the decree was essentially the need to resume commerce and trade. And we included it in our perspective, and we even included a copy of this remarkable historical document, which is held at the French National Archives and was part of a recent exhibition organized by the National Archives on the history of epidemics in the wake of the COVID pandemic. Now, needless to say, our world today, of course, is very different. We have better capabilities, better medical capabilities. We have better knowledge of the nature of these infectious diseases and so on. But implicit in that is this larger question about how do we end a public health crisis, which, as we know, is at the same time, and as historians have shown, is at the same time an economic and political crisis. And how do we continue to protect the public? And so in our perspective, we touch on these issues and argue that a lot of these processes are not observed carefully. And when we do observe them carefully, we realize that there is a great mix of interest. It is not science per se that forms the basis of these decisions, but a variety of other interests. Thank you, Dr. Abi Rashid.